But I think where the NCAA goes wrong is in suggesting that the analysis should be based on its own perspective of what it thinks supports amateurism. Because amateurism is not its own free-floating ideal under the antitrust laws. It's not something that the competition laws focus on to aspire to in and of its own right. It's it's only relevant to the extent that it actually connects up to that pro-competitive purpose of differentiating the product for consumers themselves. I could just leave the court with one overarching thought, it's it's this. Petitioners are wrong to argue that any restrictions related to their conception of amateurism, including their horizontal price fixing agreements, must be upheld without analysis rather than applying the rule of reason. That would be an extraordinary departure from traditional antitrust principles. Amateurism is relevant here only insofar as petitioners can actually show that it increases consumer choice by distinguishing college sports from professional sports. Once courts start drawing their own lines, and according to the government here, everything is factual and depends on the record, perpetual litigation and judicial superintendents are inevitable. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found on my podcast website. That's bigamateurism.com, where I've got uh, the episodes, show notes, uh, descriptions, some resources that you can look at on an episode-to-episode basis. And I also have my blog, cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D. UX.com, and I can be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. Wow, that was an incredible oral argument yesterday. Whew, lots to talk about. So while let's, let's just get right into it, because yesterday was really interesting on, on, on multiple levels. And in this episode, I'm just going to do a broad summary of what I heard yesterday and what I think is important and where I think this may be going down the line. And as I've processed the oral argument and read through the transcript a couple times, I fly-specked that. So that was a very useful exercise. And as I said in the prior episode, that, that's really important, at least for me as a former advocate, to really figure out in a more neutral way kind of what the justices were saying. But looking at the totality of the argument, I've decided to do this initial summary. And then there are probably three additional episodes that I want to do to talk about some things that came up that really weren't fleshed out in the oral argument itself. And so after I do this summary episode, I'm going to do an episode on what was left out of the oral argument. Sometimes what isn't discussed can be as important as what uh, was discussed. And I've got a number of topics to talk about there, including the real absence of discussion about this O'Bannon 2 decision, the Ninth Circuit's O'Bannon decision, where I think really a lot of the difficulty the court had yesterday in framing the issues really arose with this kind of limited antitrust exemption for benefits that were not tied to education. And there was zero discussion about race. There was zero discussion about the nature of the athletic scholarship that's been in in its current structure since 1956. And then I'm also going to do an episode that I'm probably going to title The Prisoner's Dilemma. Seth Waxman, in response to a question by Justice Sotomayor, 
on whether the conferences should just be left to set any limits, these limits that the NCAA insists upon but wants the sole authority to control. Because remember, under this injunction, the NCAA was kind of benched by Judge Wilkin, and then she turned over control of these limited education-related benefits to the Power Five. So Justice Sotomayor was asking Waxman, you know, why are you so worried about the limitations that you want to have for yourself on these, with respect to these education-related benefits when the conferences can impose those limits under the injunction? Was that the NCAA and then the conferences, and we're talking about the Power Five conferences here, had a bit of a prisoner's dilemma. That's how he characterized it. You know, that's a game theory principle that poses the question whether two prisoners who can't communicate with each other either cooperate through silence or do they turn on each other to try to gain an advantage? And it was a a really interesting way to put it because, you know, that really is the dynamic between the Power Five and the NCAA. And there's been this tension between the two. That wasn't fully teased out, but it's really important because it's one of the things that it was clear to me that the justices don't understand is the dominance of the Power Five conferences and the overall business model. We've talked about that at length, but that's worthy of a separate episode. And then the the third episode after this summary is going to deal with what's going to happen next and what I think is going to happen next. So let's start with what happened yesterday and what the basic issues were as as framed in the argument. And I hope you stuck it out with my opening montage. It was very long, but it was purposeful. And the clips that I selected covered the range of issues that came up on both sides of the table. And then I think captured this sort of uncertainty that was obvious in the justices' questions about what their role was and what they were being asked to do, and then what the consequences of that would be. And as we're going to discuss in a little more detail here, connection with an exchange that occurred between Justice Sotomayor and the plaintiff's attorneys, Jeffrey Kessler, we really have to go back to how the issues were originally framed by the parties in their briefing on the original petition for certiorari that the NCAA filed, in which the question is whether the court should take the case, not really ultimately how it should rule. And that framing was crucial. I talked about this in some of my prior episodes. And, you know, the court takes the case within the four corners of how it's presented by the advocates. And the way those issues are framed by the parties is binding on the parties. And so remember, we talked about this in prior episodes, and this is so, so important. The original purpose of the athlete's lawsuit was to challenge all of the amateurism-based compensation limits that the NCAA uses to control its labor force. They were asking for a complete takedown of amateurism itself, and had they been successful, the outcome would have been an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services. And they litigated that, and and then we had this O'Bannon ruling in the Ninth Circuit that said, well, no, you can't get anything that isn't tethered to education. And then the case morphed into a case that was operating within the limits of that O'Bannon Ninth Circuit decision. But remember, 
the athletes, as they litigate this case, they can keep that issue alive. And because O'Bannon was not reviewed by the United States Supreme Court, the only way to get O'Bannon II overruled, to get the limitation overruled of this tethered to education requirement, would have been to challenge that decision at the U.S. Supreme Court. Because that's the next high, that's the only higher court than the Ninth Circuit. It's the only place that the athletes could have challenged those limitations. So the Austin case moves forward with the O'Bannon limitation in place. Judge Wilkins' remedy in Austin, these limited education-related benefits, are a product of the O'Bannon limitation. And then in the Ninth Circuit, the athletes cross appeal to keep alive the issue that they originally sued on, and that is that all of these compensation limits should be struck down and O'Bannon too should be struck down. So in this appeal to the, to the United States Supreme Court, when the NCAA appealed to the United States Supreme Court, the athletes had the opportunity to cross petition or cross appeal to keep the issue alive for Supreme Court review, and they didn't do it. So this issue, uh, this fundamental issue that has been dogging college sports for almost a century that I talked about in episode 10 and through Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model is this fundamental tension between the amateur labor pool and a pro- obviously professionalized, commercialized product. So that argument, that, that argument that was going to bring to a head the fundamental tension between these two irreconcilable components of the business model simply wasn't on the table for the U.S. Supreme Court because the athletes didn't ask for it. And when you look now at how the justices kind of framed their thinking and their concerns in oral argument yesterday, you see that that might have been a really, really big mistake. And here's why. When you look at, there were four justices who I think were receptive to looking at this case as an opportunity to completely blow the doors on amateurism, or at least come down on one side or the other with a definitive answer that we're either going to treat these athletes as free Americans and they are going to be entitled to the protections of the Sherman Act, or we're just going to say, we're just going to carve out an exception that is based on the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and these the social desirability of having college sports in an amateurism-based model. And then the athletes are just being treated as this class of, of laborers that have no rights. Those are the two options. Those are the only two options that resolve this centuries-long tension. And when you look at how justices... Alito, Gorsuch, Kagan, and Kavanaugh approach this case at an instinctive level. And ironically, how Jeffrey Kessler characterized it in his very first opening comments to the court, you see that they viewed these limitations as so profoundly anti-competitive on their face that they were almost impossible to justify. And the montage that I, I played early on in the beginning of the episode, and it was long, but it was, you know, again, I, I put those t- pieces together for purpose. You got the judge's thinking, the justice's thinking on that issue in the early section of the clip. So basically I did, you know, the very beginning, the opening statements for Waxman and Kessler, then these arguments that the justices were making 
during uh, the NCAA's argument that these compensation limits are just impossible to justify under traditional antitrust analyses. And what they were saying, and Kessler said this outright at the very beginning, that in any other context outside of college athletics, these compensation limits would be a per se violation of antitrust laws, a slam dunk violation of antitrust laws because they constitute horizontal price fixing by a market player who has complete monopoly power. Now, they use the word monopsony, which means there's only a single buyer for the product. I don't want to get confused. The, the basic premise is the same, that this single actor has complete market dominance and they control the market absolutely. And Justice Gorsuch really teased that out in, in his questioning. So the thinking is, this really is a per se violation. And when I was talking about Board of Regents a couple of episodes ago, and I was explaining the difference between the per se rule and the rule of reason, and why it applied to the NCAA, because there were these certain agreements that they had to cooperate on in order for the product to be available at all, like rules of the game and national organization and some basic eligibility rules. So that takes them outside the per se analysis. But that was determined by the Supreme Court and Board of Regents. But at the district court level and the Tenth Circuit level, both courts found that the contract at issue in Board of Regents was a per se violation of antitrust laws because of the monopolistic control that the NCAA had over the market. They went ahead and analyzed it under a rule of reason, thinking that the Supreme Court might not use a per se analysis. But in terms of the nature of the restriction, the district court and the Tenth Circuit looked at that as a per se slam dunk price-fixing arrangement conducted by a monopolistic market actor. And when you look at how Kessler wrote up the issue and then how the, you know, Alito, Gorsuch, Kagan, and Kavanaugh looked at it, they all used the exact same thinking. And they used the term per se. Kagan used it. Kavanaugh used it. Alito used it. So, it, the way they're thinking about this compensation limit is that it is so obviously anti-competitive and but for the NCAA's need to cooperate on these basic kind of structural issues that take them outside of the per se analysis, this would have been a per se violation. And under a per se analysis, if a violation is found, you go straight to remedies. You, you don't talk about, you know, these less restrictive alternatives. You basically say, this is a slam dunk violation. Now we are going to permanently enjoin you from engaging in that, those limitations in the future. And the free markets are going to determine what's happened. That was the kind of the instinctive philosophical perspective that these justices were taking in the argument yesterday. And that's why I believe that Justice Sotomayor's questions to Jeffrey Kessler were perhaps the most consequential exchanges in the entire oral argument because Justice Sotomayor had Kessler concede they were not seeking what they sought in their original lawsuit. They were not seeking an open and free market for the value of the athlete services. They were seeking a narrow ruling that merely affirmed this limited injunction that was 
imposed by Judge Wilkin in Austin that conformed to the restrictions in O'Bannon, although she didn't talk about O'Bannon. Nobody talked about O'Bannon. In fact, O'Bannon was only mentioned three times and not in a context that, that had any consequence. But I just want to, you heard this early in the montage. I just want to read it again because I really believe that this is, um, this is important. So Justice Sotomayor says, counsel, you declined to cross petition the judgment below, correct? And then Kessler says, yes. Then Justice Sotomayor asks, so for the purposes of this court's review, you are not asking for any broader relief than that already provided by the district court, correct? Kessler, that is correct, Your Honor. Sotomayor, you're not asking us to address the issues that Justice Alito or others, including Justice Kavanaugh, have raised on whether or not there should be any limits, educational or non-educational. You're happy with the injunction you got. Kessler, we are not asking for broader relief than affirming the rulings below. And I'll just say it was clear to me that uh, Justice Sotomayor is on the NCAA side. She's not ruling for the athletes here unless it's some extremely limited affirmance of the Ninth Circuit decision. And her question, that last question was really brilliant because what she was saying is you've heard all this stuff from Justices Alito and others and Justice Kavanaugh that all these per se issues are irrelevant because you've waived them. And he said, yeah, pretty much. That's, that's what we're doing here. Now, I think there are some ways he could have answered that in a way that might not have completely slammed the door on that issue. And I, I guess it's theoretically possible. I mean, the Supreme Court can do whatever it wants to do. And I guess it's theoretically possible that if there are five justices who agree that this essentially is a per se violation that has to be analyzed through the role of reason, uh, that they could, you know, blow the doors on amateurism. But I don't think that's going to happen. And I, I don't think it's going to happen in large part because of the way the issues were framed from the very beginning in the petition phase, the question of whether the court should take the case. And then at oral argument, there's just a slam dunk waiver of any claim that they're seeking an open and free market for the value of the athlete services. So what happened is the real dilemma here that is the ultimate dilemma between this amateur labor force and this highly professionalized, commercialized enterprise can't be resolved within the four corners of the issues as framed by the parties. And that places this case in an interesting posture right now, in my judgment. In that regard, I want to talk a little bit about this law case, the law of the NCAA, which was decided in 1998. And remember, that was the case that I identified among the five cases I used to illustrate antitrust principles. And one of the reasons that I selected that case is because the compensation limits at issue there were virtually identical to the compensation limits applied to athletes, at least as a market practice. And one of the things that I think in an open analysis that goes right to the heart of whether athletes should be paid for the full value of their services and that all of these compensation limits should be struck down is that I think it's very difficult doctrinally to distinguish between law and these athlete compensation limits. So remember in law, the NCAA came in and they set a, an arbitrary and really absurdly low compensation cap 
for a certain category of assistant men's basketball coaches called restricted earnings coaches, and that limit was $16,000. The coaches sued the NCAA and said this is a slam dunk violation of antitrust laws. The district court found that quickly and explicitly. The Tenth Circuit affirmed quickly and explicitly saying that this would have been a per se violation unless we were forced to use the rule of reason analysis that was the result of Board of Regents. It was a slam dunk, clear-cut, price-fixing case, and antitrust laws simply won't permit it. So how is that different from the compensation limits from a market standpoint and doctrinally in terms of the nature of the limits that can be put on competition? How is that different from the athletes being told that they can't be paid any more than the value of a full cost of attendance athletic scholarship? I don't think there is any difference. And I don't think that you can defend that unless you're doing it on normative grounds. And when I, in episode eight, when I talked about these invisible forces that lead justices to sort of subordinate the interests of athletes to those of adults and institutions. I think that that would have been at play. I don't know if it would have been outcome determinative, but the way the issues were framed by the parties in the Supreme Court appeal in Austin, the court didn't have to look at it that way. And Justice Sotomayor put the nail in the coffin on that for the athletes. And on that point, uh, you know, these invisible normative issues that have influenced federal courts, because of the narrow parameters that, in which this case was framed, it was really hard for me to tease out whether the justices were being influenced by those normative principles, with, with the exception of Justice Breyer. I mean, it, that was a real curveball, I have to say. Justice Breyer was kind of like the, you know, the crazy uncle at the family reunion, and he just kind of went off. And it was hard to figure out exactly what his points were, but it was very clear that he was deferring in large part to these non-economic, non-commercial justifications for the compensation limits, really kind of the way that Justice White did in his dissent in Board of Regents. So it was very old school, and it was not at all the way I thought he would respond based on my initial impressions of how the court may align itself. And, and that's changed as a result of this oral argument as well. And I'm going to talk about that more specifically when we get to this um, episode on what I think is going to happen next. But in looking at, you know, the potential implications of any inertia in favor of the NCAA because of invisible normative values. I, I'm not sure that that was where these justices were coming from, with the ex exception of Justice Breyer. Maybe Justice Barrett, she, she flirted with that a little bit, and I think she's on the NCAA side as well. But in terms of where, you know, Alito and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Kagan were coming from, they kind of kicked to the curb all this old history stuff and the honor and tradition and revered tradition and all that. And they were looking at this as a market analysis, a purely commercial market analysis. And when they came back around, when, when Kessler started arguing and those four justices were kind of uh, expressing their concerns to him, they all related to this notion that Justice Kagan called, you know, the floodgate dynamic. And are, are we opening up the floodgate here? 
And that would have been present even if the argument was about whether or not the athlete should be paid for the full value of their services. But I think in the context of the way the issues were framed, their concerns were this nickel and dime concern that I expressed a couple of episodes ago, that with this crazy O'Bannon II limitation and this distinction between education and non-education related benefits, and the fact that Judge Wilkin in Austin determined at the summary judgment phase, at the pretrial phase, as a matter of law, that the NCAA's compensation limits were anti-competitive. And quite frankly, uh, Seth Waxman conceded that at oral argument yesterday. So in the this Ninth Circuit framework, the status quo in the Ninth Circuit, you have a, really a preset case for plaintiff's lawyers, for antitrust lawyers to come in and just nickel and dime their way through a case to get to a plausible remedy that would entitle them to attorney's fees. And so that the nature of the concerns that I heard from, you know, Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and those that kind of supported this notion that the compensation limits themselves were really noxious. Their concerns were related more to how the case will play out in the future, how the litigation would play out in the future, what the end game would be, as Justice Kavanaugh said. If we just affirm the status quo, and that is a result of this dysfunctional analytical framework that has come out of the Ninth Circuit. So because the case was limited to that, either antitrust immunity for the NCAA or affirming this dysfunctional status quo in the Ninth Circuit, there are legitimate and real concerns that a, a mere affirmance without any restrictions or without any discussion or without any direction really don't solve the issue and may make matters worse because then you have this endless stream of litigation. And the NCAA was very good at capitalizing on that. Waxman did, a, I think, a very good job of seeing that that's where the justices were headed. And that was kind of his money argument when push came to shove. And that was when he did his closing. That's what he emphasized. And I think that that was probably the, the best move for him, given the contours of the argument and the concerns that the justices raised. And, and so from my standpoint, in looking at this oral argument, I'm not sure that it really advanced the cause of revenue-producing college athletes. And, you know, there were times when Kessler was arguing, I wasn't sure who, which team he was on, because he was very deferential to the limitations that Judge Wilkin put on the uh, relief that she offered. And she put those limitations in place because of O'Bannon II and because O'Bannon II largely deferred to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and then brought it around in the remedies phase to create the equivalent, in my judgment, of a limited antitrust immunity for any benefits that are untethered to education, which means no way that there's going to be an open market for the value of the athlete services. So Kessler was arguing in favor of that when his original lawsuit was to tear it down. And, you know, plaintiff's lawyers want to get paid too. And they adjusted their strategy. And in their defense, you know, you had this O'Bannon 2 decision come down. Uh, but uh, so in, in the district court, they kind of retooled their 
approach and went with this modest education-related benefit remedy. And they recommended that. Their experts recommended that to the judge and said, oh, look, it's okay if we just turn over the regulation of these benefits to the five power conferences, because then there will be competition and we don't have market dominance and market control which isn't true. And, and that's why I'm, what I'm going to talk about when I get to the episode on the prisoner's dilemma. And it demonstrated a fundamental misunderstanding of what the business model is in big time college sports. And I think the justices don't understand that. And that is really an important thing for them to understand. And that's the extent of the Power Five's dominance at every level of these issues and the fact that they are really calling the shots here. And importantly, they are not the athletes' friends. They are not the knights on white horses riding in to do the right thing by the athletes. They have marched in lockstep with the NCAA throughout this Austin litigation. And remember, I referenced that statement by the NCAA's lawyer, Don Remy, after Judge Wilkin ruled against the NCAA in Austin, and that was in March of 2019, he comes out with a statement announcing that the NCAA is going to appeal, and he makes very clear that the NCAA and the conference defendants, which means the Power Five conferences, agree unanimously to appeal the case. So there are some tensions there that, that we've talked about in other episodes, and I'm going to tease those out a little more specifically in my Prisoner's Dilemma episode. But there's no question here that the NCAA and the Power Five are marching in lockstep. And even though this, this didn't come up, and I think this would have been an important point for Kessler to make, is that even though the injunction order, the Austin injunction order, that would allow the conferences to provide these limited education benefits has been in effect since August 4th of 2020. There's zero evidence that any of the Power Five conferences have offered a single benefit. And why would they when they're standing right beside the NCAA in this litigation saying that the athletes shouldn't be entitled to those benefits? I mean, it's it, the fact that that uh, dynamic wasn't on the table in this discussion is really distressing because it means that the justices don't really understand the business model. So, so now I want to go back on the backside of all these issues and the arguments here, and really the montage lays them all out. So you have these two fundamentally competing concerns, one about whether the NCAA is egregiously violating antitrust laws. And if you adopt the NCAA's position, then basically you just throw, take the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act and you just ball them up and throw them in the trash can. And then on the other side, within the limitations of the uh, analysis frame, as framed by the parties, you have this concern about the endless litigation. So you have those two things that were on the table, but you, you don't have a satisfactory way to resolve them, in my judgment. But it brings us back, takes me back to the initial question that I posed when I was writing in my blog about how these issues were being framed during the petition phase. And that is, why did the United States Supreme Court take this case if they sought only to affirm the status quo in the Ninth Circuit? It doesn't make any sense. If they just wanted to affirm the status quo, they wouldn't have taken the case. And that would have sent the message that they were okay with the status quo or that they needed something more to look at in order to accept the case. But they didn't. They took the case. Why? And to get to that is going to require some, some wild speculation. But I think my speculation 
is somewhat informed and I'm going to engage in it anyway, if, even if it turns out that I'm just flat wrong. So I have that asterisk next to this. But remember, for the United States Supreme Court to agree to hear a case, four justices have to agree. And you never really know who those four justices are. And you never really know whether they're all coming from the same perspective, whether they come from different perspectives, but agree that it's an issue that needs to be reviewed. But my assumption coming into the grant of the petition for cert, and that was, I think, on December 16th, maybe, of 2020, was that you had a group of four justices who were inclined to agree with the NCAA and to grant it complete antitrust immunity. And again, that was informed by my take on how the issues were framed at the petition level by the parties and the fact that the athletes had abandoned their request for an open and free market for the value of the athlete services. So I didn't think, why are they taking this case? Unless there are four justices who are inclined to want to grant the NCAA absolute antitrust immunity. And my interpretation of the limitations of the case was confirmed at oral argument yesterday through Justice Sotomayor's questioning of Jeffrey Kessler. But now pressing rewind with the benefit of the oral argument, it's possible, it's possible, well, let me back up a second. So my initial take on who those four justices were were basically uh, broken down kind of on party lines, the way that this discussion in the Senate had broken down. And if you're a Republican, you're for the NCAA, and if you're a Democrat, you're for the athletes which is overly simplistic, admittedly, but that's the way it actually played out in the Senate. And I I thought, well, maybe that's what's happening here. And so my initial take was that you would have Thomas and Barrett and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch saying, yeah, we're going to, we're going to go NCAA all the way. I don't think that was the case. I don't, I don't believe so. Now, with the benefit of this oral argument, I think that it could have been these four justices who were NCAA all the way and just wanted to kind of end this discussion by granting them complete antitrust immunity. And those justices would be Sotomayor and Barrett and Thomas and Breyer. Because I had, Breyer was a curveball. I had no idea that uh, he felt so strongly about affirming the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism because of non-economic, these non-commercial reasons, which really does press rewind, you know, back to 1984 and before. So that's one group as I see it now. Then it's also possible, in my judgment, that you could have had Alito, Gorsuch, and Kagan and Kavanaugh come together because they looked at this and said, this is just an indefensible restriction on open competition in a labor market. And you have a, an actor with complete monopoly or monopsony, monopsony power, however you want to characterize it, that is engaging in blatant price fixing. And it's possible that they may have been saying, you know, uh, it's time to just kill the snake in a different way. And that is to say what nobody's been willing to say out loud. And that is that these athletes are being exploited and this Compensation limit is indefensible morally, but more importantly, is indefensible under antitrust principles. And if that were the case, if there was this group of justices that wanted to hear the case to really think about whether they should open the market for the value of the athlete's services, it would explain Justice Sotomayor's attempt to nip that in the bud with her questions to Kessler. So 
Who knows? Again, this is all just wild speculation, and both of those could be wrong. But based on what I heard yesterday, I think that the alignment of the justices kind of breaks down along the, those lines in terms of how they're likely to want to rule in the case. But then again, they're, they're stuck with these uh, limitations in the way the case was framed. And that leaves Justice Roberts as the decider, the ultimate decider. And he loves to play that role. I'm going to dig into that more deeply when I talk about what I think the court might do and what some of their options are, given the issues as framed and the observations and concerns that were expressed yesterday. And, you know, the other thing that I was thinking about this case on the initial petition briefing, you know, on the question of whether the court should take the case, was that the easiest thing for the justices to do would be to just grant the NCAA antitrust immunity. Then they don't have to deal with all the dysfunction in the Ninth Circuit analytical framework. They don't have to bless it knowing that it is so dysfunctional that it's going to create this endless stream of litigation. And in that regard, and this didn't really come up uh, directly, but this is important to note. And this kind of ties into what I think cynically was part of the athlete's attorney's strategy, and that is to try to keep this gravy train rolling in the Ninth Circuit. Jeffrey Kessler's co-counsel, uh, his name is Berman, I can't remember his first name, but he argued in the Ninth Circuit in Austin that he split time with Kessler, and he brought a group of athletes in, and then Kessler's athletes and Berman's athletes were uh, joined together in, in the class action suit. And procedurally, it's kind of a nightmare. So I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on that. But Berman is a prominent antitrust lawyer. And in fact, I, last month or so, I, I got one of these flyers that, that you get occasionally where there's a class action that's been certified. The class has been uh, or, or will be certified. And they're trying to figure out who's in the class, who's outside of the class. And because of something you, you might have purchased or some other thing you might have done in connection with the product at issue or, or the practice at issue, they ask you, you know, have you ever X, Y, Z? And that flyer had Berman's name on it. So he was representing the plaintiffs. And so he's out there. But, but Berman, he had a claim for damages in his with his Austin class. And those were the people, the class of people that did not get the, the benefit of the O'Bannon remedy, which is the full cost of attendance scholarship. And there was this group of athletes that kind of uh, got lost between the ruling and then the actual time that the full cost of attendance went into effect. And so they should have gotten the benefit, but they didn't. So anyway, Berman settled those claims with the NCAA for $208 million. And the NCAA has extraordinary incentive to settle antitrust cases to avoid the possibility of a trial on damages that could result in triple or treble damages as they got in, in law. So, and you heard Seth Waxman talking about well, trouble damages, damages, trouble damages. Most of the focus here recently in, in the antitrust litigation brought by athletes is focused more on the injunctive relief. But Berman's class had a really good uh, claim to, to damages, and the NCAA knew that they probably couldn't defend it, and they chose to pay $200 million rather than $600 million if they had tried to take this to trial. But uh, Berman got like $42 million of that. And I don't know what his fee sharing arrangement was with Kessler and whether Berman kept all that or maybe, you know, who knows. But 
That's important because Berman gets $42 million, and then after the injunction is issued, after the trial, the plaintiff's lawyers, and I'm assuming Kessler kind of gets the lion's share of this, got another 42 to $44 million in attorney's fees. So between those two components of the Austin case at trial, at the trial court level, the district court level, these guys got over $80 million, 80 to $85 million in attorney's fees. And so Berman turns around as the NCAA is beginning to talk about voluntary nil rules changes. And he files a suit in uh, Judge Wilkins' court in the Northern District of California, an antitrust class action suit, claiming that because the NCAA has committed to this this nil compensation, which it never did, by the way, and it's not going to do if it wins in Austin. And we've talked about that as well. But Berman filed a, a lawsuit that's pending right now, uh, styled House versus NCAA, asking for a bunch of money. <laughs> so in the NCAA, in their briefing, I think it was in the Ninth Circuit when they were trying to stay the injunction order. And then they made oblique reference to, to it in their uh, petition phase briefing. Uh, that, that case was a classic example of the NCAA being nickel and dimed. And that's a, that's a fair argument. It's a fair argument based on the way that these issues have been framed in Austin in the Supreme Court. But, you know, so you have this attorney who is part of the Austin team who has a direct incentive to preserve the status quo in the Ninth Circuit because it leaves the door open to this kind of, you know, continuous cycle of litigation with the, within the O'Bannon II framework. And, and I think it will be a fair question to ask whether the pendency of that lawsuit or the appeal of future antitrust litigation in the Ninth Circuit didn't influence the strategy in the Austin appeal. I mean, who knows? And you know, maybe that will reveal itself at some point. But if the Supreme Court winds up ruling that they're going to give the NCAA antitrust immunity and that there was some momentum on the court for just opening the market, but that door was shut by the waiver of the plaintiff's attorneys of of that issue uh, on the appeal to the Supreme Court. You know, that, that could wind up being a very consequential strategic call. And then on the flip side of that, you know, the NCAA, and I've talked about this at length, and again, this wasn't teased out either. And that is the connection between the NCAA's strategy, its overall strategy in Austin, as it fits into this broader strategy of, of acquiring the Iron Throne control of college sports regulation and its activities in the Senate. If the NCAA winds up losing here, and a loss would have to be something more than just a mere affirmance in the Ninth Circuit. I don't view that as a loss, and I talked about that in prior episodes as well, because the NCAA still comes away with a form of antitrust immunity for any opening of the market to the full value of the athlete services. But if the Supreme Court were to rule in a way that really made a substantial chink in the amateurism armor that the NCAA is used so effectively, then you'll have to ask yourself, you know, (laughs) did the NCAA do the right thing by appealing and subjecting themselves to the risk that the U.S. Supreme Court could blow the doors on 
amateurism. And again, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. And, there, and then I guess there's one other substantive thing I just want to point out, because one of the fundamental arguments that the NCAA and Waxman were making is that, yes, amateurism is an anti-competitive limit on open markets and free market behavior. But that limit, which is athletes can't be paid, is absolutely necessary to the product. And so it is actually a pro-competitive justification. And, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, I think that's what he was referring to with the NCAA's circular arguments. It's, you know, yeah, amateurism is a clear violation of antitrust uh, laws on its face. Oh, but amateurism is absolutely essential to our product. It's how we define our product. So it's actually pro-competitive. I mean, it's, it's nonsensical on its face. And again, the pro-competitive justification only comes in because we're applying the rule of reason. And under a per se analysis that Alito, Gorsuch, uh, Kagan, and Kavanaugh, I think would have applied in any other context, you don't even get to pro-competitive justifications. You don't get to make that ridiculous circular argument. Seth Waxman kept saying in defense of that circular argument that this is just a, the rare case where it just so happens that the anti-competitive practice is also the pro-competitive justification. You're in this Orwellian kind of Alice in Wonderland world to accept that. But that is what Waxman was arguing, that this is the quote-unquote rare case and that theme came through uh, his argument again and again, often to the uh, incredulous head-scratching by the justices and some tough questions that I think uh, Waxman didn't really answer effectively. I think that drives home this notion that played out in O'Bannon too, that the appeal and the allure of amateurism and the history of it and all the things that the NCAA wants to focus on that really are outside of the relevance of amateurism as a pro-competitive justification in a full rule of reason analysis. But this, this notion that amateurism is a freestanding normative principle that deserves special treatment under the law because it is that rare case really is a problem when you are trying to do a true rule of reason analysis. And so you, know, you had uh, Justice Barrett say that, and then Kessler responded to that. And he said, the court should not create a special judicial antitrust exemption based on any claims that the NCAA is somehow special. That is for Congress, not the courts. The rule of reason already provides ample latitude to joint ventures, to organizations like this, to sports leagues, to assert what you need to assert to justify the restraint you need. And Kessler was very good on that point, and he made it several times. And, you know, he made this, actually, that was one of his closing arguments when in the Ninth Circuit, when they were arguing Austin in the Ninth Circuit, that, look, if there's going to be some special treatment of amateurism, and special treatment of the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. That has to come through Congress, because if you're going to analyze amateurism as a freestanding normative principle, you have to look at all of the surrounding justifications for that. And Justice Breyer tried to pull amateurism out for that purpose the way that Justice White did in Board of Regents. But when you do that, you can't conveni conveniently focus only on the non-economic justifications for the restraint offered by the NCAA and just default to this revered tradition of amateurism. If you're going to look at general societal, cultural norms and values and what's worth preserving at the societal level, you have to look at all of the impact of, of that particular principle. And I think as Justice Breyer's thinking made clear, and, and this goes back to this 
my episode eight and, and the ways that judges have been quietly influenced at the values-based level, Justice Breyer was only thinking about that in terms of uh, how it benefited the NCAA. He wasn't looking at it in terms of the exploitation side of that. So, you know, there's a full range of issues that could be discussed in deciding whether or not this principle should be protected through a congressional antitrust immunity or in any other way. And that can't be done in federal courts, and it's not really relevant in antitrust analyses under the rule of reason or, or the per se rule or under any antitrust analysis. So that's really an issue for Congress. And, you know, Kessler had the right answer there. And then when the United States had an opportunity to present oral argument through its acting Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, who was very, very good. She addressed that too, and, and I thought she, she articulated it pretty well. And, and I'll just say this too before I, I read this quote. I thought the United States position was kind of down the middle within the four corners of the issues as framed in this case. And they, it was very reasonable, but it, it insisted on the application of the full rule of reason analysis. And they weren't asking for anything more, didn't talk about anything more. Prelogger was very disciplined in staying within the four corners of the United States argument, but she was very, very good. I hope she becomes more than just the acting solicitor general. But talking about amateurism as a freestanding normative principle, she said this, but I think where the NCAA goes wrong is in suggesting that the analysis should be based on its own perspective of what it thinks supports amateurism, because amateurism is not its own free-floating ideal under the antitrust laws. It's not something that the competition laws focus on to aspire to in and of its own right. It it's only relevant to the extent that it actually connects up to that pro-competitive purpose of differentiating the product for consumers themselves. Very, very well put. And the way that Breyer was approaching this, the way that a lot of the uh, lower court federal judges have approached this, and then obviously in the Tenth Circuit dissent and Board of Regents with uh, Judge Barrett's dissent, and then with Justice White's dissent in Board of Regents. And let me add the, uh, you know, O'Bannon too, the majority there. All of those analyses brought amateurism out as a freestanding normative principle that really had no relevance to the actual antitrust analysis at all. Of course, remember that both Barrett and the Tenth Circuit in 1984, I'm sorry, 1983, I think was when they, the Tenth Circuit ruled, and then Justice White in 1984, they were simply saying that because of the value, the normative value of amateurism, it was placed entirely outside of antitrust laws altogether. But I think what general prelogger was referring to there was this use of amateurism in the rule of reason analysis as a freestanding principle that was not tied to its only relevance, which is as a pro-competitive justification for anti-competitive practice as it relates to consumer preference, consumer demand, and consumer well-being. So I, I think that pretty much wraps up my initial impressions and thoughts on the oral argument yesterday. And then as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I intend to do an episode or more. I haven't decided how I'm going to break this out. And as I've been talking in this episode, I'm looking at the list I had compiled of, of upcoming episodes. I may, I may condense them, but some of the things I want to address in up, upcoming episodes are the things that were left out and why they're so important. I want to talk about this prisoner's dilemma 
that uh, Seth Waxman raised in response to Justice Sotomayor's question on the conference's roles. And and then I want to talk about what I think is going to happen and what I think should happen and what next steps might be for the athletes' rights movement. I just, again, going back to my initial instinct and the way the issues were framed, I find it extraordinarily unlike that five justices are going to agree to just strike down all of the amateurism limits that apply to revenue-producing athletes, which, which again, is what the athletes were asking for in the first instance and then renewed in the Ninth Circuit and then just abandoned uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court. And so I guess one more thing. On that strategic decision not to cross-petition for the full value of the athlete's services, Justice Kavanaugh asked Kessler a question. And he says, sorry to interrupt, but your position, I think, in the district court was that all the compensation limits are contrary to the rule of reason, correct? And what Justice Kavanaugh was asking there is that you were going for the grand slam home run. You were going to try to strike down all of these athlete compensation limits under the rule of reason analysis. And Kessler says, yes, and I lost that as a matter of fact. And now they've won on that issue twice as a matter of fact under the rule of reason. And facts would probably have to change further for a different result to happen. If there are new material facts in the future, then we know under antitrust law, the rule of reason could come out differently at a future date. But I have no reason to think that I would win today on facts that I just lost on yesterday. And that's an interesting quote. And I suppose there's some logic to that in the context of their argument, the athlete's argument, that the trial judges, Judge Wilkins' findings of fact, were essential to its decision in the rule of reason analysis and that those facts were proper, that they weren't contested on some uh, essential elements in the rule of reason, and that not challenging the facts and saying, you know, we want to win on this issue, and then challenging factual findings that were inconsistent with the original purpose of the lawsuit uh, wasn't a good strategy move. But I, th- I think there might have been a way to articulate that differently that at least left the door open to the possibility. And they had to wrestle with that uh, in, that potential inconsistency. I don't really view it as a, as a big inconsistency. When they cross-appealed in the Ninth Circuit, and you know maybe I'll do a whole episode on that, and we'll just kind of look at uh, what the thinking may have been. But you know th- that's what you're stuck with if you're the athletes. And, and that's the framework. That's, that's the issues have been framed. And I just, again, as I said, I, I just don't see with this framework, even with some of the surprising comments that I heard from justices who really were hostile to the, to the NCAA's amateurism-based compensation limits, that they're going to blow the doors of amateurism. So uh, again, that puts the momentum in my judgment in the NCAA's favor. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and close this out. And boy, it was fun. <laughs> I'll say this just from a, from a lawyer's standpoint, from an advocate standpoint. I, I thought it was a really lively, uh, well-informed debate with the exception of some, I think, gaps in the tape and the justices' understanding of the overall business model. But we'll talk about that in, in another episode. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I hope you had a chance to listen in. It's available you know, on C-SPAN. It's available on the Supreme Court website, as is a transcript. So, so with that, I will close this thing out. And thank you for joining me. And I hope to see you back on the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Thank you.